I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. Yeah, hi. I'm wondering, do you uh, sell like paper maps, like road maps? We don't have any of those. Yeah, hey, do you guys sell uh, like maps? No, we don't. No, we don't. Okay. Circle K, Bill speaking, may I help you? Yeah, hi. I'm wondering, do you guys sell like paper maps, like a map of like the. No. You don't? Sure. No, I. No, the only place I would know that would have one and you're not going to get in there today would be like a uh, like a chamber of commerce or something like that. Really? Uh, okay. Or, or, or perhaps someone like directly off the interstate, like a truck stop or something like that. As a millennial who started driving in the late 2000s, I've never been behind the wheel without the digital safety net of a global positioning system. My first whip, as we called it back then, was a beat-up green Honda CRV with a Garmin the size of a brick strapped on the dashboard. Soon enough, like alarm clocks and pocket calculators before it, even those GPS units were made obsolete by smartphones. I never, ever, ever had to even think about using a map in my life. But of course, I don't need to tell you this. According to a few sales slides someone at the company showed me, Thrillist's main audience is about 21 to 36, so You guys get it. And if you are a little bit older, you still probably don't use maps anymore because why would you? But for the sake of experiential reporting, I wanted to take a quick road trip without using the internet to see if the process could somehow enlighten or inform me. I know it sounds like a headline the New York Post would run, millennial doesn't know how to use a map. And yeah, I have to admit, using a map was stupidly hard for me. But here's the thing. Finding a map might have been even harder. Thanks so much for holding. This is Crystal. How can I help you? Yeah, um, I'm wondering, do you guys sell, like, maps, like paper maps? I do not. They are getting harder and harder to find. Um... (laughs) After two Walmarts, nine gas stations, a rest stop, a Walgreens, a CVS, a car wash, an AutoZone, and an advanced auto parts store, I finally found an atlas of the United States at Staples. Thanks, Staples. Staples. That was easy. But the difficulty in procuring a map only accentuated the central issue that we plan on dicing through in this episode. A few months ago, actually when I was taping our episode about Philly cheesesteaks, my phone lost service in Philadelphia, and I was completely stranded, lost, panicked. And I realized that for the sake of convenience, I had become utterly directionless in my life. Okay, so... See this blue bridge right here? Mm. That's 26. Right here. That's 17. That's 17, so I feel like we loop around and then go up, and then right here is like our hotel. 17, so 17 is going to take us straight over this bridge. Yeah. Is this where our hotel is? It is. is No, our hotel is here, I think. I'm pretty sure. So cut to me, hunched over an atlas with my partner Keller, plotting an ostensibly short and easy road trip from southern North Carolina to Charleston, South Carolina, a roughly four-hour drive we'd make without making use of our smartphones. 
Figuring out how to get from city to city seemed pretty easy. How to get to an exact address I've never been to using this map seemed basically impossible. There were zoomed-in pullouts of big cities like Charleston, but there was no way to find an exact address. Even in the days of pre-smartphone internet, you could still hop on a blue iMac to ask Jeeves to find MapQuest and then print out step-by-step -step directions before your trip. But what did people do before that? Luckily, my mom, noted baby boomer, was on hand to regale us with tales from the old days. Did you used to highlight the roads? Yes, the route. the route. But what did you do when you had to go in depth in the city? We're staying on 17. Well, then, let me think. Do well, you see, <laughs> yeah, I do remember because it was a, tri a trip away maps and they had booklets that they gave you, like spiral booklets, and it was called a triptych. I guess one question is how do they get from here to 17? That's what we used to do. They had like a trip planning department and you'd sit down at a desk and you'd say, I'm going to Miami Beach and this hotel and I'm coming from 313 Locust Street. So they would make a custom map for you? They would definitely make a custom map. And that was one of the benefits of being a AAA member. So we mentioned MapQuest, which was in many ways a precursor to modern day apps like Apple Maps or Google Maps. But before MapQuest, there were AAA triptychs. You know, one of our AAA employees over the years had said, AAA was, the, was Google before Google existed. So my name is Paula Twydale. I'm the Senior Vice President of Travel at AAA. So AAA has a rich history of, of mapping expertise. Uh, and then in 1937, AAA produced the first triptych routing. So what that consisted of, triptych, was a series of what we call strip maps. And think of like strips of paper, and then they were put together and bound. But each strip was a section of a route. That route showed the path of a trip from start to end. As my mom mentioned, they were spiral flipbooks, custom-made for your road trip, giving you a hard copy of step-by-step -step directions to your destination. It took the guesswork out because when you look at a big map or a big atlas, you're like, oh, which, which route should I take? You know, is something under construction? You know, we've mapped out so many things for our members to make that uh, journey a lot easier. It was a real great guide for people to get on the road and feel confident about where they were going when they had no concept of where they're going. Right now, AAA members can still make a version of a triptych online, or you can request an old-school paper version, something, according to Paula, a ton of people still do. But I'm going to say that, you know, we all become creatures of habit, and we become so reliant on technology. Even when I'm in my home state of Florida now, and I have to go someplace I don't know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know where I'm going. I have Google or Waze or something on, right? But you start to panic suddenly when you only have a signal. It's kind of a safety net, so it's, it's advisable to have the best, I believe in having the best of both worlds and being prepared. But having the ability to use triptychs today in conjunction with some of the technology that's out there, I think it augments it in some way and it, it actually gives you more peace of mind. That's what AAA is about anyway, right? It's, it's about peace of mind. We unfortunately did not have the foresight to procure a triptych, but we plotted our route, put our phones on airplane mode and placed them securely in our glove box, eventually. All right, Keller, we have to put our phones on airplane mode. What? What if I need to make a call? 
Um... I won't cheat. Then headed out on the road with none of the internet-powered navigational parachutes that we've grown so accustomed to. So, we're heading north, I think, which is where we need to go. Okay, and then this street right here is called, uh, Operation Center Drive. I don't... Have I mentioned that I get nauseous when I read in the car? <laughs> no. Well, it's gonna be a veer to the left. Yeah. And it's gonna be a sign for 421 or 76. I thought we are on 421. Yeah. Turn left on Highway 17. Yeah, you need to do the GPS voice. In a half mile. Okay, yeah, so we're good. We're good. Okay, so the other thing that we have to do is we can't use our Bluetooth to play music. What? So So you have to find a good radio station. This sounds all right. Is ZZ Top? Yeah, this is adequate. <laughs> That's I the volume. Like this. Yeah, this is good. This is working out. Uh, we were so confident, but little did we know we were hurtling towards imminent directional disaster. But before all that, let's take a little detour. In the days before sites like Thrillis would suss out things to do in cities around the world, guidebooks and magazines would serve a similar function. Zagat, the Michelin Guide, or even the more pedestrian road food helped you find places to eat. And Foders and Rick Steves would showcase points of intrigue around the world. But for niche communities, ones that maybe didn't have national platforms or mainstream interests, pertinent information relevant to their travel questions wasn't as easily accessible. I've started playing in my first punk bands when I was probably like 13, 14 or something like that. And I lived in Naples, Florida, and there was absolutely no scene there. The closest city where anything was happening was Fort Myers, which was like half an hour, 45 minutes north. And there was a cool little scene there and everyone hung out together and everyone kind of had their own zine. And that was my introduction to zine culture. That's Laura Jane Grace from the band Against Me, exclamation point. She also fronts the Devouring Mothers and just released a solo EP. She has a best-selling memoir, Tranny, Confessions of Punk Rock's most infamous anarchist sellout, and she's toured all over the world. But before all that, in the pre-message board and social media days, she was using zines to communicate with other punks across the country and plan low-budget, multi-state tours. And to do all that on a national scale, one zine in particular reigned supreme. Book Your Own Fucking Life was a resource, and it was basically a yellow pages of DIY punk houses. It was something that every band I knew used. Our first tour was a mix of using Book Your Own Fucking Life, as well as the contacts I'd made through pen pals with other zines. You know, Book Your Own Fucking Life had a list of states and cities, and there would be numbers and addresses and you could try calling those numbers and maybe someone would pick up. Or you could try writing a letter and sending a demo tape. Book Your Own Fucking Life ran from about 1992 right up to the turn of the millennium. It was produced by Maximum Rock and Roll, a bigger zine created by DIY icon Tim Yohannan, covering the punk scene at a national level. You could find resources that would help get your band out on the road and also meet like-minded people along the way. 
Rich Black was one of those people who, in the early 90s, started his own zine in Long Island called Under the Volcano. A few years later, Rich was recruited to help compile new editions of Book Your Own Fucking Life. It was basically a, a book of listings for bands so the bands could go and tour and it had things like places you, you could eat, places you could sleep. So it was a way of contacting people to, to come into an area and play. It was to make, make the world a, a better place so that I didn't have to listen to any shitty cover bands anymore if I didn't want to. The zine had a cardboard cover that was generally just a two-tone crude sketch, and it was mailed to aspiring punks all over the country. I think we put together about 4,500 listings that came through mail in, in general, which was pretty daunting. So you'd see things like you know Indian restaurants where people could go and, and actually play and get fed. You know, it was really, I mean, it's totally, totally DIY, you know, or it's like, it's like, yeah, well, there's this house of punks and you know you, you can put on a show there and pass out a hat and they'll, they'll, they'll just sleep on the floor and you know and give you spaghetti and i think that book your own fucking life is a natural extension of the culture and and had a very useful extension at the time literally it was it was so that you could go across the country by yourself it was an authority it was a place that you could you know you could go and they would book 13 shows in a row i think that's that's exactly what it was intended to do. And that's exactly what people like Laura used it for. One of my favorite memories that stemmed from Book Your Own Fucking Life was on the first Against Me tour, we booked a show at this place called The Pink House in Asheville, North Carolina. And it was literally just a very large pink house, a punk house. Probably had like 10 or 15 different roommates living in it and they put on shows in the basement. And I remember it was Aaron Comet Bus who ended up being the person who organized our show that particular day. And we were like late and showed up and Aaron's there and Aaron's like, you're late, you can play five songs. And we're like, okay, all right, Aaron. <laughs> like, but we played our five songs and they were the best fucking songs ever. And so it was places like that. You go up there not knowing what you're getting into, but you walk away with like lifelong friends that change your life forever. But I think, you know, it was so important and it launched so many bands of like, don't wait for someone else to book your tour for you. And it was like a, going through a crucible, you know. So BYOFL tried to leap to the internet in the early 2000s, but it ended up fading away into obscurity, replaced by MySpace, Twitter, message boards, and independent websites. We asked Laura if any part of her misses this objectively harder, if not a little more thoughtful, way of doing things. So just a quick producer note here, our recording tech crapped out at the very end of this interview, but luckily we did have a backup recording, it just sounds a little worse. See, even the internet lets you down sometimes. I don't know, I, I don't know if it would be false of me to say I miss it because I'm looking back with rose-colored glasses. In thinking about it now, it's like one of the amazing things is getting into zine culture and having pen pals like that and feeling like, okay, I've got this network across the country or across the world made you feel less alone and made you feel a little, little safer in this way, right? Um, and now extending that in, on hyperspeed with, with a smartphone in your hand, like as a trans person, that's invaluable. I can go to any city and I know that if I get into some shit that I can send out a tweet and have some resources of people who could potentially help me, who are like-minded people, who are punks like me or whatever. 
And that probably has some drawbacks, but that also has a lot of benefits. Overall, the things we lost by gaining constant and instantaneous connectivity might deprive us of some of the grind, some of the serendipity, but it's a small price to pay, at least in this case. However, if you want to buy a steaming pot of DIY nostalgia, we have links to some old copies of BYOFL in our description. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we talk to a travel agent working right now about why more people than ever are actually seeking out her services. Plus, Keller and I learn the hard way that we aren't as good at reading maps as we'd like to believe. It gets bad. Stick around. So we were cruising down the Carolinas, ZZ Top ringing in our ears. We didn't know how long it would take to get to our destination. We were pretty sure we were going the right way, but we wanted to stop somewhere and really find out. All right, we're at the South Carolina Welcome Center. All right, let's check it out. All right, so we just went into the Welcome to South Carolina Visitor Center right over the border from North Carolina. And uh, she didn't want to be recorded, the woman who worked there, but she said a lot of interesting things. First of all, when you walk in, there's like a million <laughs> maps and guides. She handed us like three or four super detailed maps, not only of Charleston, but of the state at large. She gave us directions to a restaurant and was kind of rattling off roads like it was an episode of the Californians. Get back on San Vicente, take it to the 10, then switch over to the 405 North and let it dump you out into Mulholland where you belong. And she also said that a ton of people, like more than a dozen, come in every day looking to get actual maps because they don't want to use their GPS. Yeah, she gave me a different route to avoid traffic and traffic light. All right. Onwards and upwards, then. The agent at the border who dealt with handing out maps and giving directions brought to mind another business that was essential to travel pre-internet that cratered in the early 2000s. Before sites like Thrillist were around to tell you the best hotels to book and restaurants to visit, before you could go on Google and search for cheap flights or rental cars and then book them right on your browser, a lot of would-be vacationers hired travel agents. The travel agent profession has changed dramatically over the last 30 years. That's Sarah Fazadin, owner of Vidaria Travel, who confirms the obvious here. The internet made travel agents increasingly obsolete. So at that point, the travel agent community, you know, kind of lost a ton of their revenue. And so that business model completely fell apart. It really took up until the pandemic, I think, for what we do and the value that we add to evolve and to sort of recover from that and change. The COVID-19 pandemic, which decimated the travel industry in general, actually gave the seemingly antiquated idea of travel agents a major boost. Right now, a big part of their job is chopping through the red tape of logistical bio-nightmares that anyone who has traveled internationally over the past two years certainly knows about. So with our clients, not only are we 
really planning so much more than we ever used to, you know, down to dinner reservations and timed entrances into museums because uh, capacity is limited. The level of detail right now is so much more significant than it, than it probably ever was. And then obviously there are the very logistical, how do you get into the country? Like, what, what tests do I need? It's taken us double the time to get clients ready to travel, letting clients know you need to schedule a COVID test on December 18th, and here's the form you have to fill out. And, and that's, you know, that probably won't go away. I mean, hopefully all this testing and stuff will just stop at some point. But I do think that travelers are getting trained to think a little bit about, well, maybe I should make a dinner reservation. Or if we want to go to the Eiffel Tower, maybe, you know, maybe we should set an appointment to do that instead of just kind of wing it and do it when you get there. But it's not always just about COVID. People hire Sarah for the same reason people hire party planners. Sure, you can do it yourself, but you might not want to go through the effort, and you definitely don't want to mess things up. It's certainly a luxury, but for many people, it's totally worth it. I like to say they come to us when the stakes are high. It really is something when when there's some emotional involvement in or um, a significant investment of money. And in Sarah's mind, what she's doing isn't in direct competition with sites like Thrillist. We actually complement each other. Well, you know, a a lot of our clients actually do a fair amount of research. I think research is one of the most fun and inspiring parts of travel, right? So even if someone was researching on a site like Thrillist and they come to us and say, hey, I found this and this looks really cool. It's like, okay, that's great. Like, let's take a look at it. And I think, in my professional opinion, it'll work for your your family or your group for this reason, it might not for that reason. And But let's take that and incorporate that into your trip. The type of experiences that we put together, I have described in the past as ungoogleable. I mean, there, it's not something that you can just pull up. The core value of, of the reason we're able to put together seamless itineraries, provide these ungoogleable experiences, really customize the experiences, is because we have these great relationships all around the world. Like if something goes wrong, we're going to make it right. You know, sometimes when you go on a trip with a spouse, a partner, you kind of get in fights about planning and stuff. If, if we had a travel agent, we could just blame you. and just say, no, it's not our fault. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and we do we do play um, like a psych therapist or psychologist quite often in what we do. But, you know, it's also not necessarily about the fighting. It's my ability to confidently say to a traveler, look, I'm going to take this off of you. Now you can just get ready and get excited about your trip. And you can trust me that I've made the right recommendation. And, you know, we usually do. (laughs) So on the subject of couples fighting, let's get back to our internet-free road trip that, up until this point, has been smooth sailing. Yeah, we're about to hit some choppy waters. That's got to be it. I think we stayed on the right way. So we don't even need a map at this point. Okay, a quick note, we actually really did. Well, you know what we're supposed to do once we get off the bridge. What is sticky night? Well, we called the hotel, so I wrote down some directions. So we go over the bridge, we get on the roundabout. We stay on the roundabout as opposed to going straight. Okay. The roundabout comes out onto Carolina Street. Okay, and then take a right on King And then you take a right on King. Okay, cool. Okay, great. The problem is we just can't get lost because then we'll be really So screwed. Okay, uh, 
He said roundabout. That's the only so direction. So downtown next two exits. Next two exits. So okay. That's where we want to go. Okay. All right. Thank God for signage. I don't think we want to get out here. I think we're right. Unless it was up there. Unless it was up there. North Charleston. Okay, well, he didn't say anything about turning onto Meeting Street. So driving on the highway was fine. It was basically a straight shot that we could follow on our map. But coming into an unknown city, rolling into the labyrinth of signage and exits without the glowing electric certainty of our Google Maps, at night, without a detailed map, running just on verbal instructions, well, that sucked. We might be driving rapidly away from the city. Oh God. <laughs> oh no. Now we're back on a highway. Yeah, we are. Um. We're on West 26. Oh what's man. What's that? Uh, we really fucked it up. Oh God. We're just speeding off in an unknown direction. <laughs> we're going back north, actually. I think we're going west. Exit. The next exit is, is closed. closed. Oh my god, and that's we're a whole so mile lost. away. Oh god. Uh, every second we go, we just get further and further away from where we need to be. I kind of think that we should look at the map. Okay, well, I'm not even making sense. if we look at the map, what area are we looking at? Do we know where we are? Well, that's the problem with maps. I don't know where we are, so how can we locate ourselves? What's over here? Okay, I'm gonna pull in here. We were on 17, and then we just, we took a turn off here, and then we went on 26, and then we just kept going and going and going, and now we must be up here somewhere. Okay. So if we can get back. To 26? Yeah. And go back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we just have to backtrack, which is gonna be hard. <laughs> Hey, it's all right. I really do see on the map actually where we need to go. It's just finding that. Um, okay. We're on Cosgrove Street. 231 Cosgrove. Let's go. I think we need to go this way. Down this dark road. It's super dark. I just saw some. Oh, that's always a good sign. But this is King Street, which is where we are going. Like King you Street. You think this is the same King Street? Why would it be a different King Street? I don't know. We know okay. that we're going south. Okay. And we're on a street that happens has the to same be name. The same name. As <laughs> it's just really one. far. Okay. Let's. Okay, let's just go south. Oh God. So how, are, how is everything else with you? <laughs> ah! <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, a little bit of, little bit of room work. Oh, Huger, I think I recognize that. Yes, here we are. I found this on the map. Are you sure? Yes. 
Yes, here we are. Okay, keep going down. All right. Man, it's a good moment when you find yourself on the map. <laughs> and then this is Ray Street? Yes, 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 no yes. It's all way. checking out. Ooh, that looks like a cool place. Okay. Okay, I think we did it. You were so right. After all our toil, after we generally did find our way, we still could not locate the actual hotel on King Street. Because we don't know how to find exact addresses, especially on densely populated city blocks at night, swarming with drunken tourists. I think we passed it. You think we passed it? So you think we went too far, but we're in the right place? Yeah. Okay. All right, let's turn around. And starting on this internet-free road, I had thought that maybe this old-school method of travel would show me something, would allow me to, I don't know, live in the moment, or provide me with some ineffable connection with the open road, tell me something about travel that's become obscured by our reliance on tech. But in the end, it just added about an hour of time onto our trip and a whole lot of stress. This has got to be it. Yeah. If this isn't the hotel, we're just gonna stay here. Okay. Uh, okay. All right. I think we can look at our phones now. Really? I think we can. Just to confirm this is the place. And for anyone out there under about 40 years old looking to take a road trip without the internet, I have two small nuggets of advice. Don't make dinner reservations and always pack a trip tip. This show is produced by myself and Mia Fast, edited and mixed by the otherworldly Dean White and Abby Austria. Special thanks to all of my bosses, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, and Emily Feld. That's it for us. Put your tray tables up, leave your shoes on, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.